Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Frank Bruni has been a prominent journalist for more than three decades, including more than 25 years at the New York Times, the last 10 of them as a nationally renowned op-ed columnist who appeared frequently as a TV commentator. He was also a White House correspondent for the Times, its Rome bureau chief, and for five years, its chief restaurant critic. He's the author of three New York Times bestsellers, and in July 2021, he became a full professor at Duke University teaching media-oriented classes in the School of Public Policy. He continues to write his popular weekly newsletter for The Times and to produce occasional essays as one of the newspaper's official contributing opinion writers. And today, he's here to chat about his new best-selling book titled The Beauty of Dusk on Vision Lost and Found, which hits home here at My Buddy Green as it shines the spotlight on our Invisible Illness series, which I encourage all of you to check out and we will link to in the show notes. Frank, welcome. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. As I mentioned before the show, such a huge fan of your work and your book is just so important. Our own eyesight is something we tend not to think about until we start to struggle with it. So really important work. So congratulations. Thank you. Walk us through that morning in 2017, pretty innocuous morning, you know, feeling, feeling a little fatigued. You desperately needed coffee. What, what happened next? Let's start there. I, it was a Saturday morning and Friday night being the end of the week. I'd been out with my partner at the time and had, you know, kind of boozy-ish dinner. And uh, I woke up and there was clearly something wrong with my eyesight. It was subtle or maybe confusing is the better word at first, but I, I, there was a fogginess to the right side of it. And I thought maybe some gunk had worked its way into my eye overnight, or I thought maybe it was the extra glass of wine that I hadn't needed, or I thought you know, maybe it was just a matter of drinking a bunch of coffee, going for a run, taking a shower and letting the water hit my eye. And as the day went on and I did all of those things and nothing got better, I began to suspect something might be wrong. But even then, you know, I had that sort of, I think of it as a boomer faith in remedies or as a kind of boomer invincibility, um, which I don't mean as a brag. I mean it much the opposite way. I just assumed that it would either go away the way like a neck crimp goes away or something, or if it didn't, I would find out in short order that I just needed to you know, put a few drops in my eyes or something. But over the course of the next days, I had my own eye doctor tell me that it looked like something serious and that I should go see a neuro-ophthalmologist, which I didn't even know that specialty existed. And then I went to that doctor and it was a longer visit to the doctor than I think I've ever had with a battery of visual tests that I, eye tests that I didn't even know existed. And this was about five days after I woke up that morning. And on that visit, I was told at the end of two and a half hours that I had probably had uh, what is considered a stroke of the optic nerve that I would never, almost certainly never see normally out of my right eye again. And that I was going to live forevermore with the significant risk of the same thing happening in my left eye. So from that morning, that Saturday morning, when I woke up with strangely blurred vision to five days, you know, five days later, I was basically told you might go blind. And that was the beginning for me, not only of a very intricate medical odyssey, which I recount in the book, but I think even more so, much more so a sort of emotional, psychological, and even spiritual odyssey where I had to confront things having to do with aging, things having to do with vulnerability that I'd never confronted before. And so what went through your mind that moment? where 
your doctor essentially told you you might go blind? What immediately came to mind? Well, you know, I mean, I almost played kind of jokes in my head. I mean, I, I literally said to myself in a comic vein, because I think we go to that place when we're trying to cope, I immediately thought, oh, I should probably call my sister and tell her that one of her, one of her, her two dogs is going to need to be retrained to be my guide dog. I mean, I, I literally told myself jokes like that. I was not a lot went through my mind though, because I was sort of running on adrenaline. And, and I think we have all sorts of physiological and psychological processes that kick in that are adaptive mechanisms. But I don't think I really took in the full measure of what that doctor said to me until days or even weeks later. And within weeks, I was doing very practical things like making sure that my disability insurance at the New York Times was at a maximum level and that I was making the maximum contribution to it, stuff like that. But emotionally, I think it, it was quite a number of weeks and maybe even months before I fully reckoned with what I'd been told. Because I think you do run on adrenaline. I think you're in a slight state of disbelief. And I think all of those are kind of adaptive cushions that have to do with the way we're made as human beings. And they're all sort of, they're all mercies in that sense. And, and I think you know, in the process, and you talk about this in the book, when one is facing a serious diagnosis, there are a couple of questions we could ask ourselves. There's why me? And then there's why not me? And how do you think about those questions and, and how you approach them it, in your own way of coping and, and trying to deal with the diagnosis you were just dealt with? I think that is, it's, thank you for that question. I think that is the great defining binary of sort of coping with a situation like this, of moving on in the best direction. I think the speed with which you can transition from why me to why not me, and the fullness with which you can see that the real question is why not me. I, I think that's the key to not only kind of surviving a, a, a very scary juncture like this, but to thriving afterwards. I was very blessed because I sort of instinctively did move quickly from thinking like, gee, this is such a rare thing. Why did it happen to me? Of course, there was no, no answer. I moved pretty quickly from that to, to looking around me, to doing a sort of kind of fresh and different kind of survey of the people I knew and the people kind of in a half circle around them and the people just beyond them. And I realized that if you add all those people in your life, your friends, your acquaintances, et cetera, in a truly full and, and truthful way, you realize that everybody has dealt with something pretty major or is dealing with something pretty major. It's just most of the most difficult stuff we all deal with is not visible, you know? My situation is not visible. I mean, I, it was very frustrating after it happened to me and friends were learning from me that I no longer had usable vision in my right eye, that I was going through a, a difficult period of the brain adjustment, you know, to monocular vision as opposed to binocular vision, and that I was living with the sort of, of blindness hanging over me. I constantly had people say to me, but you look fine, but you look the same, but nothing looks wrong. Well, almost all of the most difficult stuff we deal with is not visible to the naked eye. The cancer that you just dealt with or that you just got diagnosed with, the child who committed suicide, the parent who is tumbling into the abyss of Alzheimer's. None of that is anything that, that people around you see when they look at you. But if you look around you and you do that and you ask those sorts of questions and you do that sort of investigation, you realize that whatever just happened to you, it puts you in robust company and it is just the thing that happened to you it's not some, you know, the, the details of the cross you're bearing may be singular. The fact that you're bearing a cross is not singular at all. And when you take that sort of self-obsession and self-pity out of the equation and end up saying, why not me? I think you've made an enormous step toward the healthiest future possible.
you're preaching in the choir. We have an editorial series called Invisible Illness. You know, and I, I think about the world today we live in, uh, you know, at the mental health epidemic as another one of those invisible illnesses. And this idea that we all need to be a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more compassionate. I'll segue to tribalism later in the show and understand that everyone is struggling and it may not be clear to you. With that said, one of the things I, I, I loved about your book you went on this journey where you talk to a number of people who were suffering from invisible illnesses and you tell their stories and, and, you, and you, you find inspiration in these stories. And so can you share, is there one that stands out of all the people you met where it really had a profound impact on you? Yeah, no, I mean, th thank you for mentioning those people. And uh, I was, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm just going to digress for one second. I'm so much more aware than I used to be of the ways in which I'm blessed and the ways in which I'm lucky. And one of the ways in which I'm very lucky is having spent a lifetime as a reporter and a journalist. I kind of automatically, without even plotting it, segued into journalistic mode and began interviewing people around me about how they dealt with the surprising and potentially debilitating medical crises in their lives or with their disabilities. It just... It wasn't originally, I'm going to do a book and I'm going to include these portraits of them because they're such instructive and inspiring portraits. It was more of a journalistic reflex that I realized in process would be perfect architecture for a book and perfect material for a book. One of the people I met right away, I had a very good friend who was clerking for a distinguished jurist on the U.S. District Circuit Court of Appeals. I think I have that proper now correct. It's, one, it's probably the main feeder court to the Supreme Court. It's that high in the system. And he was clerking for a gentleman named David Tatel, who was in his early 70s and was a judge on that court. David Tatel has since retired. And David Tatel had climbed to that zenith of his profession, despite the fact that he had gone blind in his early 30s from retinitis pigmentosa. And my friend offered to introduce me to Judge Tatel, who to that point in his life had really resisted talking about his blindness. He didn't want to be seen as the blind judge. But he was nearing retirement. He was at a different point in his life, spiritually, psychologically, et cetera. And he welcomed me into his chambers and we had a long conversation and we became um, quite good friends over the next years. Whenever I would go from New York to DC, I would make time to see Judge Tatel, not just to interview him, but we were friends at that point. I got to know his wife, Edie. One day I was in DC and he was someone who I, he, um, you know, had learned Braille late in life. He could listen to audiobooks. I forget what the speed is, but like 2.5, 2. 2.6 speed. So he could consume things that all stuff that he had learned to do in it after, after he went blind in his early thirties. And one day we're in his chambers talking and we were due back at his apartment to have dinner with his wife, Edie, who was cooking dinner. He lives maybe five miles away from the courthouse in DC where he works. And I said to him, okay, so should I call an Uber? And he said, no, we'll, we'll take the Metro. And I thought, huh, how's that going to work? You know, that's a it's an eight block walk to the Metro. And I thought, oh, okay, well, he wants to do that because I'm with him. And so he's going to grab my arm and I'm going to lead him. And that'll be cool. Hardly. Over the years, he had memorized his path out of that courthouse. He knew the number of steps. He knew from acoustical cues where he was in the building. He knew from, acoust from acoustical cues and also from memory how to get from that building to the Metro, how to kind of, he had, he had a total sense of whether or not there was traffic going by because he was that much more attentive 
um, to the sounds of things than you or I might be. He essentially led me into the metro, sec metro station onto the right platform, onto the right train. And I knew him well enough at that point, and he knew me well enough that I knew I could say without sounding condescending or patronizing, wow, you know, that's really impressive that you can do all that. And when I said that to him, he said, Frank, starfish can regrow limbs, but that's nothing compared to what people can do. And he had just shown me that in that walk to the Metro. And so many of the other people whom I met through doing the book and who are in the book are testaments to that. We are so nimble and so adaptable as a species when we're called on to be. And when you see that in action and the people around you, and when you begin to see that in yourself, it is, it, it removes so much fear from the equation and it allows you to kind of march into the aging process and into old age with an entirely different attitude, because you now know, and you have seen how good we are at compensating and adjusting and maximizing what's left, what's left for us, what's still available. So of all the people you interviewed, it is the commonality mindset, which enabled these people to march on with their lives and keep going and, or was it something else? I think it is that ability to recognize in a big sense. And then in many small senses, every day or every month that you come upon all these forks all these junctures where you can turn in the direction of savoring and emphasizing and working with what you still have, those advantages, those blessings that still exist. Or you can turn and face the other direction and do a survey and tally of your losses, of your slights, of your disadvantages. There is nothing gained from turning in that negative direction. It may be accurate to turn in that direction. You know, it, it, it may be utterly warranted and deserved. But how does it make the next moment and the moment after that any better? It doesn't. You're cheating yourself. Now, there are situations I am not a Pollyanna. In fact, if you'd asked me before this happened to me, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Without delaying a second, I would have said pessimist. So, so I'm not a Pollyanna and I realize, and I want to say this, it's important. There are physical uh, ailments that people face. There are, you know, diminishments of kind of physical ability. There are other crises in their lives that, that, that are so dire, that are so overwhelming that they don't call for a mere attitude adjustment. I'm not minimizing any of that. But for many of us, and for maybe most of us, our difficulties do allow us to make a decision. Am I going to focus on what's been taken away from me? Am I going to focus on what I can't do? Or am I going to focus on what I can do? And the people I met who were the most inspiring, instructive, and showed me the way and are examples to all of us and have turned their lives into the happiest and most fulfilling experiences possible are people who understand every week, every month, every year, when they come to one of those junctures, one of those, one of those forks in the road to turn in the direction of being more positive and more grateful and more adaptable. I love it. And to me, it also speaks to another key theme of the book, which is empowerment. You are empowered and you know, I'll segue to your commentary on doctors, which I found mm. to be profound. And there was one passage in particular I, I love, so I'm going to read it out loud for everyone. Quote, doctors are flawed. They're human. We want them to be gods because we want that certainty, that salvation. We want clear roles. The doctor commands, the patient obeys. But at times in their imperfection and arrogance and haste, they make assumptions and mistakes. 
So it's crucial to approach a relationship with a doctor, any doctor, as a partnership and to consider yourself an equal partner, respectful but not obsequious, receptive but not skeptical, end quote. Wow, powerful. I don't know about powerful, but that was my experience. And I hope that I hope that take on the situation is helpful to other people. I think there are many too many people. We live in, a, in an era where there's a crisis in each direction. There is, there is a disrespect often for expertise that I think is very destructive and corrosive in American life. But we can also err too far in the other direction, especially when it comes to our health. Doctors know an enormous amount, and it is vitally important to avail yourself of their wisdom and to also like go into a doctor's appointment or any relationship with a doctor with a long list of questions. I often, I often say to myself and to people who ask me about it, doctors are only as good as the questions we ask them, right? You can turn your doctor into a great doctor, or you can be content with your doctor as a fine doctor. But you do have to ask the questions. You do have to educate yourself. And you really have to realize that as wonderful as many doctors, maybe most doctors are, they're dealing with a thing about you, the thing that is consistent with their specialty, right? As, as a matter of just kind of human nature and professional nature and expertise, they are going to see you disproportionately through the lens of the problem that you went to see them for, right? You're the only one who kind of has the information about all of you from head to toe, including your emotions, including your spirit. You know, as I also say in the book, I think I use this metaphor, you know, you're the homeowner. And so you're the only one who really knows how to work the thermostat, you know? And I think too many people, because they're afraid, because they just want to outsource all answers to someone else, they don't realize that those shortcomings exist in doctors and they end up cheating themselves and getting not as good health care, not as good as, me as medical care as they might because they're being uh, way too passive and way too deferential. And I say that, and I, you know, I, I not try to be politically correct here, but I say that as someone who's blessed enough to have health insurance and doctors at my disposal, you know, and so I can, we're in a lucky position. This is what I mean about blessings. If you can actually kind of be discerning about the doctors that you're seeing and be critical about them, well, you're ahead of the game because you've got doctors to see, you know, and, and the money to pay them. Well, I think it's very important. You know, as we all know, doctors have very little time. And when you're seeing a doctor for an acute condition, they're experts in that acute condition, but you are a whole person. And you need to be in charge of the whole person known as you. And sometimes you're not going to get the answer you're seeking from that specialist and, and nothing against the specialist, but they're, they're pressed for time and they're dealing with this one thing that you're trying to deal with and you need to be educated and you need to empower yourself and, and take some responsibility and accountability. A hundred percent. And I mean, to me, the kind of in my own story, the best example of this is because I was in two different, you know, NIH approved clinical trials of experimental investigative, whatever they call them, treatments they were looking at as possible helps for my condition, NAION. I was in two different clinical trials. Because of that, I mean, I interacted with more than a dozen medical professionals, including probably more than half a dozen um, very distinguished doctors. And not one of those people ever asked me, okay, you're someone who went from never thinking about your vision to being told you might go blind. 
you're someone who went from, you know, writing at the speed of wind as a function of what you do for a living to having to kind of pause and deal with dyslexic effects of your vision and typos. How are you doing emotionally? Do you need any counseling? Are you talking to anybody? No one asked me that question because that wasn't their specialty. No one let me know something I learned on my own later on, which is for those of us who are well shy of blind, but do have, vis do have vis vision challenges, there's a whole field of, there's a whole group of therapists and field of therapy called low vision therapy. None of the eye doctors I was dealing with ever mentioned that to me. And it's not because they're mean people and it's not because they're incompetent people. It's because of what you just said. They're cycling through so many patients a day. They're seeing the world through the, you know, through the lens, you know, through the, the parameters and the lens of their particular physiological, anatomical, whatever specialty. And that's why you have to educate yourself, you know, and look beyond those doctors for all of the other elements of what you might need to be in the best shape possible. And so what advice do you have for anyone who's listening, who may be facing their own serious illness or diagnoses right now? Find people who are in that same situation. There are many, many, many downsides of the internet in our lives today. And I often feel the internet is more pox on our existences than it is certainly any kind of panacea, just to be alliterative. But, but the internet does allow you to connect in some ways more quickly and efficiently than you otherwise would. For my condition, NAION, there's a support group on Facebook. I never accessed it simply because I was fortunate enough, again, very conscious of the ways in which I'm blessed. I, in fairly short order after this happened to me, began mentioning it or writing about it in the context of my work for the Times. And that brought many people into my inbox. And in those emails, there were exchanges where I could realize, okay, this thing that I'm noticing, that's not, not unusual. Other people have noticed it. This fear I have, other people in my situation have that exact same fear. You know, you feel immediately less alone and then educate yourself in responsible ways. Don't just surf the internet indiscriminately and end up in crackpotville, which is many corners of the internet. But you know, <laughs> if you, if you surf the internet in an intelligent way, making taking care to note where you're going and all that, you can pick up a lot of information. You know, I, I had a doctor tell me right out of the gate that it was going to be an enormous risk for me to fly to my remaining good eye. And it was partly through asking, bouncing that off of other doctors, but it was also through, you know, looking in the internet, seeing are there any studies that say that, et cetera, that I realized rather quickly that was not the conventional wisdom or a consensus perspective. That was almost more of a renegade theory. You can figure some of this stuff out, but it's just, it, it takes an investment of time and it takes you getting beyond, you know, any sort of kind of fear or catatonia over what you've just been told about your diagnosis. You know, you kind of have to steady yourself, ground yourself and be practical. And so how have your views on longevity or mortality changed? Well, I don't know that my views on longevity or mortality have changed in the sense that I'm st I've never been someone for whatever reason who's like, give me as many years as I can get. I have always been, I've always thought of myself, even in my own head, as more of a quality of life than fact of life person. And, and that, that ripples out through many of my political views. But I was someone who, dread is too big a word, but I was worried about old age, shy of death. I thought when I cease to be able to take any kind of run, you know, I'm going to be inconsolable about that. You know, when the last of my hair falls out, I'm going to be inconsolable about that. I'm not being a little dramatic. That stuff I've changed a lot. 
because I have just seen through the last five years of my experience with this, how much I was able to adjust to, how much I was able to say goodbye to without dissolving into a heap of tears, how much I was able to say hello to, as I said, goodbye to that stuff. You know, another tiny, small example, but I think a really instructive and powerful metaphor. I was never able ever, and I mean, unable to consume audiobooks. My mind, my attention wandered. I did not understand how people could remain attentive to, attuned to, and consume an audiobook. Once this happened to me and physical reading became a little more difficult, still is, I've gotten better. And I also thought there may come a day when I really can't read. I made a renewed effort to do audiobooks and I really made an effort and I tried again and I tried again. And I'm not Judge Tatel yet listening at 2.5, but I'm listening at like 1.7 or 1.8. Two of every three books I consume, I consume through my ears. I remember the content in them as well as or better than I remember the content in whatever books. And so that to me is an example and a metaphor. There's going to be stuff I can't do in the future, but it actually may open the door to something I'll do that I didn't do before that's compensatory, but actually comes to feel like its own wonderful experience and opportunity. You mentioned the future and you also mentioned political views, fear, the rabbit hole of the internet. And I can't help but think of tribalism. You wrote a great op-ed in the times, I think in January titled why tribalism will be the end of us. <laughs> Look, there, there seems to be tribalism everywhere, politics, COVID, even nutrition philosophy here in the wellness world. You know, what role do you think media is playing here? It seems to be that media is becoming more polarized, more about preaching in the choir, less about building a better church. Is there a fix? Are we doomed because of tribalism? I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist and an exercise my wife and I did around the election was we would go side to side. We watch Fox at 9 PM and then we watch Hannity and Matto side by <laughs> side. And then we would go back to each other and say, oh man, we've got some, we've got some issues. I just want to understand everyone here and I'll pause there. Tribalism. No, we, we have an enormous problem. I don't know if there's a fix. I think we have to spend a lot more time thinking about whether there's a fix than we do. I mean, in ways way bigger than what I'm going to mention, but you know, every so often, and it happened again in the 2020 campaign, Pete Buttigieg in particular talked a lot about it. Every so often, a new generation of politicians will discover the idea of national service, of compulsory national service. They will, no, they will note correctly that, well, nobody wants to be at war or have a draft or whatever. There were periods of American life where the fact of military service for more than just a very small subset of Americans that that kind of threw together people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different racial groups, and that there was enormous kind of value and, and a moderating influence to people being thrown together with a uniform and a unifying goal. I think that idea of some sort of national service, compulsory, na compulsory national service, Israel does it, but where whether we have young people giving some time to working and beautifying our national parks, whether it's, you know, some sort of like uh, amalgam or multiple choice of teach for America, parks for America, you know, et cetera. I think we have to put some energy and some brainstorming into projects in this country that would push back against and counter what happens with media consumption and the internet, which you mentioned before. We're living in a whole new era. When you and I were growing up, there were three national newscasts at night, ABC, CBS, NBC. I guess if you counted PBS four, you know, there were only a couple of national newspapers and there were many downsides to that. 
you know, homogenous perspectives, et cetera. But people weren't living in 5,000 different versions of reality with 800 different truths, right? Now you can curate and customize the information you get, the news you get, so that it absolutely reinforces and amplifies your pre-existing prejudices. And lo and behold, we have exacerbated tribalism as a result of it. In the face of that kind of information and media ecosystem, we've got to talk about some pushbacks, some solutions, because it is tearing us apart. It is turning it is turning us into enemies. It is making people look at everybody in their lives as either friend or foe, black or white, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think it's a dire problem for this country. I don't think it's I don't think it's easy and it may be impossible to have a democracy under those conditions. You know, it, it's sad, it's scary. And you know, my wife and I find the only place we can go on television is is a show that you've been on, Bill Maher. <laughs> I mean, even, even there, that can get ugly, you know. I it, mean, it can, you know, but it's something. Yeah. At least what I would say is there are various points of view. Well, what I like, I mean, there are things Bill says that make me cringe. And sometimes I've cringed on set and pushed back on them. He and I had a spirited exchange the second to last time I was on a show when he was beating up on people who have weight problems, which is, which is a bugaboo of his. And I think he's, I think he lacks empathy on the subject of body size and weight problems. But that said, what I do appreciate and even admire about Bill is that he is sort of heterodox in his political positions. He does not tuck himself into one of the ready-made, easy political categories or boxes. And these days, that's no small thing. You know, I mean, many too many people put an R after their name or a D after their name and then just decide I'm outsourcing all judgment to that D or that R and whatever basket of positions they give me, those are my positions. And I hate the people on the other side. I don't think Bill hates people based on which side of the of the partisan aisle they sit, you know, or anything like that. I think he's a bit more independent minded in his approach. And I think being more independent minded is something that will help Americans get past this incredible polarization, you know, and rediscover things like common ground and compromise, you know, and a true public square in which ideas are exchanged and debated with civility. It sounds like Shangri-La when you talk about common ground, <laughs> debating and discussing ideas in a civil way. It feels like Shangri-La, but I mean, things have changed really quickly. I, I reacquainted myself with a number that should have been in my head just last week when I was writing. I think it was just last week when I was writing my weekly newsletter for The Times. I have a newsletter that comes out every Thursday at noon. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed by a, a near unanimous vote in the Senate in that day. Antonin Scalia, hyper-conservative, I believe he was confirmed by a unanimous vote. There was this understanding then that even if you found Antonin Scalia's politics completely antithetical to your own, or if you found her politics antithetical to your own, there was this understanding, here's the way our system works. A Democratic president gets to choose his or her Supreme Court justices, and if they are qualified Regardless of their ideological bent, the tradition is that's the president's prerogative and ditto on the other side. That wasn't a century ago. Those weren't the olden days. Those were just decades ago. So maybe we can get back there. But what we talked about before has changed since then. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed in what was fundamentally a pre-internet era in terms of the way the internet and social media have saturated our information ecosystem. There was no Twitter then or when Antonin Scalia was confirmed. 
you know, there was no TikTok, there was no Instagram, there was none of this, you know, there, there weren't conspiracy theories being disseminated by the nanosecond on Facebook. All of that is new and that makes things a lot more challenging. Yeah. And I think about, you know, I come back to media and I know what the solve is here. Look, we're, the media is competing for eyeballs and headlines that seem to be balanced and reasonable don't tend to attract a lot of attention and politicians don't tend to attract a lot of attention if they seem fair and reasonable. What garners attention are extreme points of view that are polarizing and I think speak to a small base of people with extreme points of view that are not symbolic of what I call this, the silent majority. And I don't know the solution. Well, I mean, it's a vicious circle and an intensifying cycle. You know, we reward the polarizers, be they, be they media organizations or politicians. They in turn polarize further and everybody ends up becoming the worst and most extreme versions of themselves. And if I'm a reasonable, sensible person, I'm also, this segues to cancel culture. I'm not going to raise my head and say, Hey, this doesn't, I don't, I don't, this doesn't make sense. I don't want to get involved in that. Why would I put myself out there? I do think a lot of people feel like to put yourself out there is dangerous, but, but you know, I don't think there's ever too much of a problem. And I think, you know, I think there's, there is a real benefit in kind of in saying, and I say it all the time in print, you know, we need to turn down the temperature we need. I mean, in the same way you know, to kind of bring us full circle in the same way that you can't look at someone whom you meet or even one of your acquaintances and from the outside have any idea of the complexity of what they've been through in life or what they're going through right then. You can't know what the person whose political views differ from yours. You can't know how he or she arrived at those views, yes. what's informing them. We need to stop objectifying everybody around us. You know, we need to kind of see everybody around us, whether it's in terms of their emotional struggles and their health and their medical situations, or whether it's in terms of where they're coming from politically, we need to see them as multidimensional people. And if we can start talking to one another as multidimensional people, we may be able to, to get ourselves at least partway out of this, you know, tribalist death spiral. Amen. What is your hope with this book? My, I, I wrote the book in part for the very selfish reason that I felt I had a story to tell and it was a story that was on my mind. And I'm someone who, again, one of my many blessings is that because I have apparently some facility for writing, I get to be a writer. And by being a writer, I get to kind of make sense of my own life and the things that happen to me. And I get to manage them in part through writing about them. So part of my hope for, the, for this book was just for it to help me make sense of what I'd been through. But I did it in equal measure and wouldn't have done it otherwise. I, I did it in equal measure and wouldn't have done it if it weren't also potentially going to do the following, which I've seen it do in terms of the people I've met and talked to and the emails I've gotten. I think this book is a bomb and is, is a bomb and a solace and a kind of set of tips for anyone who is in a period of his or her life or is looking down the road and seeing a potential period when your potencies are not going to be what they once were, when the parameters of possibility are going to shrink or at least change. I, I meant this book to be, and I think this book is, a guide to thinking about the challenges and crises 
and temporary letdowns of your life in a way that minimizes the disruption of them, minimizes the sorrow of them, and maximizes the joy on the far side. That sounded way too life coachy for me, but um, that is really what I meant it to be, and that's my hope for it. Well, well said. The book is phenomenal, and I encourage everyone to pick it up. You know, in closing, I'd be remiss not to ask you about your favorite restaurant in New York, given I became familiar with you as the New York Times restaurant critic, arguably the the, the best restaurant critic we've had in quite some time. You got to give us, you got to talk about, we got to talk about a restaurant. What's your favorite yeah. restaurant right now in New York? I know it's not your beat, but. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not up on New York dining right now because, because I, I moved, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina and I don't what? actually. Not, I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I teach at Duke University. I mean, I, I live a very sort of- I thought you were going back and forth. No, and I, I live okay. down here in Chapel Hill and it's a very Hatfield McCoy, you know, Capulet Montague existence because I'm a UNC Chapel Hill alum. In fact, I'm giving the commencement address at UNC Chapel Hill in two weeks and I live in Chapel Hill, but I teach in Durham. I'm a full professor at Duke. And so on those occasions, as happened recently, when the two basketball teams meet, I just zip my lip and go into hiding until it's all over. So I don't get to New York as much as I used to. But when I go back, the two restaurants, I, I don't know if they're, if they're favorite restaurants all time or anything like that, but the two restaurants I find myself hankering for when I go back are, and they're very different. One is a restaurant called Crown Chai down in the financial district. And it's run by some people who are alumni of 11 Madison Park. And, uh, and the Nomad Hotel, which is, I guess, no longer open or that restaurant isn't. And then the other restaurant I love because it's just so, it's so unique. It's like being in some kind of old style, tiny British clubhouse is called Four Charles Prime Rib. It's down in the West Village and it serves a very kind of vintage hokey menu of steak and French dip sandwich and oysters and all that. But it just, you feel like you've kind of traveled back to some simpler leather lined, you know, vintage cocktail era. And it's really small and really cozy. And, and the food's probably not at all good for my heart or my <laughs> But I think that's an important aspect of food is just to let it divert and comfort you. I love it. Four Charles was on my list. I'll definitely have to go. And is, I'm curious, is a Southern season still in Chapel Hill? It's like one of my- No, they, they, you have a good memory. A Southern season, when I was a student here back in the mid eighties, I remember, I think the first time I ever had pate or like good truffles, yeah. I bought them from a Southern season and it's long gone. I mean, there's plenty of other food stuff around. It's actually it's a great- long gone? Oh no. Yeah. Southern season is long gone. It was this gorgeous- As like Crook's Corner. Really? And, yeah. There's a lot of the kind of food legends of my, of the eighties when I was a student here. Southern season was like a 50,000 or it was a massive square foot grocery store. It had everything. It was amazing. It was, they had all those things that were, you know, I mean, foodie culture was just sort of germinating that, you know, and it was, you know, it was where you went if you were a real cheese sophisticate or a real, you know, pâtés, you know, or cured meat sophisticate or, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. Well, that's sad. Frank, such a pleasure to have you again. Congrats on the book, The Beauty of Dusk on Vision Lost and Found. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.